everybody doing this morning all right? All right. Ralph's doing good. How's everybody else doing? Yes, bro. All right. I like it, bro. Well, we're going to continue. If you weren't here last week, we started a series. Uh, it was it was started out as a sermon. It turned into two. I think now we're at four. So this is part two of, of who knows, really. But uh, if you missed last week, you can go listen online. The title of the series is Believe and Have Life. Believe and Have Life. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning just recapping some of the main points of last week. And really, this is, I don't think this is just a sermon, it's just a message. I feel like, you know, as we've prayed the pastors and we've talked, I feel like this is, and you know, somebody said to me uh, after, after the first week, this message is, is a culture-changing message. Yeah. And that's what it is. What we're really trying to do is we're trying to determine what it is that, that Jesus expects from us. What does the Bible teach us about a gospel culture? Amen. And so that's what we're trying to make sure that we're obedient to his call in that regard. And so I want to highlight some main points. And of course, the, the title of the message came from John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, all the time Jesus taught and lived and loved and prayed and healed. There's all kind of stuff he did. And and there's a lot of stuff we haven't even wrote about. And he says, but these are written. That you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's one thought. John's saying, look, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, as an extension of that belief, you are invited into life. And so that's really, we said, the the thesis of this this whole series. We're called to live out our faith continuously. You know, we keep talking about bro, right? Believe, repent, obey. That's not a one-time thing. You don't believe once, you don't repent once, you don't obey once. That's a continuous cycle that we have to evaluate. Where's my belief? Where's my trust? Who am I trusting in? Am I trusting in myself? What do I need to repent of? In other words, what do I need? Not what do I need to feel bad about. It's not regret. It's repentance. What do I need to turn away from? What are the things I just need to give up? And then how can I be obedient, not just to a set of rules, it's not about laws, how can I be obedient to the call of God and the will of God in my life? Believe, repent, obey, surrender, and trust. We're called, we said, to live as God's people, as kingdom citizens, that when Jesus came, he ushered in the kingdom of God. Not simply bide our time and wait for heaven. And so he said the purpose of the Christian life, that which means, which brings meaning, ultimate and eternal meaning to our human experience is serving Christ. It's bringing him glory until he comes again into his kingdom and rules forever. And so we said the gospel story is more than just Jesus died for our sins. That is essential. That is the entry. There is no other name by which men can be saved. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Not a life. The life. And so belief is not a transaction. The gospel is not a transaction. 
It is bigger than that. It's an invitation to a way of being. And so the gospel story is, but it is more than just Jesus died for our sins. Trusting and believing in Christ starts the process. And so he said, we have a sin problem. It's fatal. Christ is the response for that. It's the, it's, he's the antidote. He's the cure. He's the only solution. But by trusting in him, that's the beginning, not the end. We said before in preaching that we don't surrender to be done, right? We surrender to begin. And so I've shared before in my life, and maybe you've experienced this in your life. If you haven't, I hope you do. I hope your life circumstances brings you to a place of you throwing up your hands and saying, I'm done, I can't do this. Because when I, when I said that, when I said we don't surrender to be done, we surrender to begin, it was a very personal thing. Because I found myself, and I don't want to take too much time because we have a lot to cover, but I find myself at, you know, 30-something years old in a rehab program in Brockton, and I'm like, boy, you know, I had good family, good parents, what happened? Like, how did it end like this? And I really looked at it as like, this is, this is the end. This is the, sort of the end of my story. Could have been the end of my marriage. Could have been the end of my life. And I surrendered. And then that, you know, that thought came to me, that spirit-led thought when we were preaching here one time. That wasn't the end. That was the beginning. And an invitation, Jesus' invitation, is to surrender to him. And so if you've never experienced that, then I pray that you do. As difficult and as uncomfortable that might be, because that's necessary in all of our lives to bring us to a place where we can say, Lord, have your way. Because God's not looking around and saying, you know, I really need a talented this or a talented that, or I need, I need these resources, I need this giftings. God's saying, I'm looking for a person who says, here I am, Lord, use me. With all my flaws, with all my, you know, all my failures, all my past, all my mess-ups, here I am, Lord, use me. And when we respond in that way, what he does in us and what he does through us is incomparable. And you'll hear me say again, it's not easy. And so if somebody tells you it's easy, they're lying to you. It's not easy. Read the Bible. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy, but it's good. In fact, it's the best way to live. Jamie just mentioned it in the first service. You know, this idea of no better life. There is no better life than following Jesus. And so that's what we're invited into. The gospel story is more than just Jesus died for our sins. When we reduce it to a transaction, we lose the bigger story, which was God's plan from creation and to consummation, which means God created us. The Garden of Eden was a foreshadowing to the kingdom of God, that God would, build, would be, be in a place where his people ruled with him and lived with him forever. And so we think, we said, we think of death of like, we're going to go to heaven. We don't really know what that looks like. We're not really sure. So this is just kind of waiting for heaven, right? Are we in or are we out? And then if Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And he says, well, the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your midst. And we're going to talk about that. And so we're invited to participate. The new heaven and the new earth where God will reign forever. That's the, that's the end of the story. That there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where we will be his people. Talks about in, in Revelation 21. We read that a lot of times at funerals, right? This idea. You know, there's a place with no more crying. And no more death. And he's going to wipe away all, all of our tears. And the whole theme of the Old and New Testament, which is he will be their God and they will be his people. And there'll be no more crying or mourning of death. And, and Revelation says the old things have passed away. And he who stands there says, behold, I make all things new. 
And Jesus stands in the midst of us. And it doesn't matter what your relationships look like or your finances look like or your health looks like or your struggles look like. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Do we believe that? Do we trust in that? Matthew 4.17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Live differently. Turn away from what you once knew because Jesus has ushered in a new way to be. The early Christians, they were called what? Followers of the way. It wasn't a compartmentalized life. Christians didn't have their work life and their church life and their home life. They had their Jesus life. And that's what we're called to have, our Jesus life, right? So his coming is the mean by which, God, by which God's ultimate plan would be realized. And we said he must be both Savior and Lord. Because here's the thing. We can recognize, I need a Savior. I need somebody to save me. And that's, that's essential. Again, that's, that's a core. But if we remain the Lord of our own lives, and we're going to see this. We're going to flesh all this out with scriptures that are great examples. And we can't, we can't be used of him. Because if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, someone else or something else is. And that's idolatry. And that's all the Bible talks about. And we said last week, N.T. Wright said this of Paul's presentation of the gospel. He said to Paul, the gospel message is always this. It is proclaiming the one true God amidst a host of false gods. And still today, the gospel is the same thing. In your life and in my life, in the world and in the church, it is standing and proclaiming Christ and Christ alone, who he is amongst all the false gods that we have in our lives, in the world. It is contending for that truth. And so we said, confess with your mouth and believe with your heart means what it means. And repenting doesn't just mean to change how we think. We said it's a change of heart that leads to a change of mind, that leads to a change of action, or it's just regret. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, For the sorrow according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, or repentance that leads to life. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Here's the thing. A lot of Christians are sidelined by what the enemy tells them about themselves. And, and a lot of us, we feel the effects. We feel regret. We feel shame. We feel guilt. And the Lord allows conviction and he allows brokenness so that he can bring healing and wholeness and change. He doesn't allow brokenness so that we can sit and wallow in shame and in guilt. And so we've explored this theme before. You see it in the first three chapters of Genesis. And we recognize that when sin entered the picture, our relationship with God was immediately, there was immediately a disconnect. And we we recognize that. And then we recognize even that there's a disconnect immediately with the way we behave with one another. But fundamentally, what happens right away is there's a profound disconnect in our own identity. We have a deep sense of shame. The result right away is what? To hide. 
And so that's our condition. We're born into that condition that something is, is wrong, that something is not cr- quite right, that we have a longing that nothing on earth seems to, to, seems to correspond to, no matter how much money, no matter relationships, no matter what we take, no matter what happens in our lives, there's still this longing if we're living apart from Christ. And that ought to open our mind and our hearts to what God is doing. And so that's what we're going to talk about continuously for the next few weeks. Amen? Take a moment, greet somebody near you, and then we'll continue. Lord, we would ask now that you give us ears to hear, that you soften our hearts, that we be at a place where we invite you to speak truth to us, God, to show us those things we might be holding on to that we need to let go of. God, give us the faith and the boldness to trust in you more and more each day. And so, Father, I pray you have your way in this place even now that your spirit and your word do what none of us can do, but what you can and, and, and do do, that you go forward in power, that you set the captives free, give sight to the blind. And so, Father, we know we pray to the one who captures only to liberate, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we, we stopped and we were looking at Matthew 7. Where Jesus says something that's not necessarily easy to hear. And he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. And just alone at face value that we might have some problems with that statement. Because it seems as if Jesus is saying something. It seems as if Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you call me Lord, it matters how you, how you behave. And so we got to dig deeper, we got to wrestle with that. And he says, on, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, what you have to understand about that exchange is when Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say. In other words, what's happening is many will come to me and think that their salvation is based on what they've done. And so they'll say, well, Lord, Lord, I said this and I did this and I did this. And Jesus is going to say, well, I never knew you because you're basing your salvation. If you knew me. No, to know me means to trust in me, means to recognize its faith in me. And you are still stuck in the religious system where you think it's about what you do. And Jesus is going to say, so you don't know me. So, in fact, he's not saying what it seems at face value he might be, which is it about works. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. It's about the source of those works. Because we said there's a lot of things that motivate behavior change. Compulsion, obligation, guilt, relationship. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I want your obedience as a result of your heart being captured by me. If not, it's just religion. It's just man's attempt to please God. 
and our pleasing of God, our our works, our fruit being produced is the result of, not a prerequisite for, salvation. And so that's what's taking place there. He's not saying we're not expected to produce fruit. He's saying that when that day comes, there are those who believe they're accepted because they did the right stuff, not based on who Christ is. And again, we said in John 15, he makes clear the source of our ability to do work for him. In him, the vine and the branches, anything apart from him, we said anything that's done not with him or for him is not, you know, anything done apart from him is not done for him. So he said the doing, again, the way, as it was called, as an invitation to do works and live different, but as the result of being, as a result of change in our heart. Again, God wants our obedience, but he only has our heart. And we said last week, We don't really believe in God if we don't enjoy him. We don't really believe in God if we don't enjoy him. You know, I said, we understand when the world sort of has this picture of God's like this grumpy old man. And all he's doing is he's watching for us to do stuff wrong. So he can sort of from up there be like, you know, kind of scolding, right? That's, we can understand the, the, you know, the worldly view of God is that there's something better and somehow he, he wants to limit us. I mean, that was the sin in the garden. And even though we literally know, it's like we have the, the playbook of the enemy. It's, the strategy's never changed. We literally know exactly how it's going to work. We still fall for it. Like, well, you know, this is really good for you, but God, you know, he's holding back. And we're like, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's an apple. You know, apple a day keeps the doctor away. I mean, looks good, right? That was the whole thing. The guy looks good. Seems, yeah, you a little bite. And we say, you know, apple, oh, if, it, if only they hadn't have done that. If only they knew. And we know better and we do the same thing because we don't trust God. So Paul goes, how could you, how could you possibly think? Now, again, the world, it makes sense. The world doesn't know. They have all these views of who God is and who God isn't. It's not, not from the Bible. Just, and Paul says, how could you think that? And he says, how could you consider that the, that the God who gave himself up for us would not then give us all things? Paul's going, if you have any, in any question about whether God wants what's best for you, look at the cross. If there's any, any concern or question about whether he's trying to limit your experience or hold back good things from you, look at the cross. If I was willing to give up my child for you, you wouldn't say, I don't know if Pastor Brian really loves me. Right? And yet, we, we, that's what the enemy does with us, with the Lord. Or convinces us that your past, even your present, your, all the stuff you got going on, you can't, you need to stay on the sidelines. Churches, I mean, sometimes, I'm going to be honest, sometimes we're just lazy, right? And other times, we listen more to the enemy to the word of God. And so we're, we're stifled. We're watching everybody else. And we're, we're reading the Bible. And we're seeing the testimonies. And we see other people. And we see the testimonies. And we look at that. And we're encouraged by that. And then we sit in our own stuff. And, like, and the enemy tells us, yeah, but you're not. You're this and you're that. And the voices tell us. And we believe that. And we sit and we observe. Because we don't think we're qualified to participate. We believe the lies of the enemy. You're not good enough. You can't do it. I'm going to tell you, right? I'm going to tell you right now. So you don't even have to ever think about this anymore. You are not qualified, and you cannot do it. 100% true. The enemy tells you that, 100% true. Here's what your response needs to be. But you know who can? The Christ inside me. 
So when the enemy tells you, you can't do it, you're this, you're that, you can say, yeah, but let me tell you about Jesus. Because I can't do it. You're right, but he can do it. He will do it, and he does do it. Amen? And so the kingdom of heaven, that's what we're talking about. That's his whole theme, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Bible says it's in our midst. It's within us. The kingdom that will come has come. The, the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan that will reign and rule with him forever in a kingdom, that kingdom has started now. And so he's saying, you as, as a member of the church, you as a, as a member of the universal church, as a, as a member of the body of Christ, are not called to observe. Jesus didn't save you so you could observe. You are called to participate. There is nobody that's not, I mean, we're, we're all unqualified, which means that through Christ we are all become qualified. And so stop listening to what the enemy says and start trusting what the word of God says. Amen? Amen. It's the longest section of Matthew's gospel, the proclamation, study in Matthew 4, 6, uh, 17 to 16, 20, about the kingdom of heaven. There's a place that says Matthew likens the kingdom to a mustard seed, which has the potential to grow into a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Big difference than than in humble beginnings. And so what are we called to do? Be faithful with what's in front of us. We live in hypotheticals, right? I have a friend, and I said this before. I have a friend who says, you know, we judge everybody else by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I got good ideas. My heart was in the right place. My hands and feet never are, but my heart was in the right place. Everybody else we judge by what they do, but not us. And we ought to do the opposite. We ought to be really gracious about other people when we judge. We ought to, we ought to try to get to understand what, what they're going through. And then we ought to look at our own life and, and, and according to the fruit being produced. But we're really good at, at pointing out what's wrong in our country. And what's wrong in our government, and what's wrong in our neighborhood, and our jobs in the world. We're just so bad at saying what's wrong in our own heart. And we think, oh, I can't wait for that day to come, because on that day, I'm going to be with Jesus, and he's going to rule, and it's going to be great, and everybody's going to be good. And, and Jesus is going, yeah, but we're all doing that now. What are you doing? <coughs> the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in your midst. It's among you. Are you participating and so the question we have to ask and answer, I have to ask and answer, is not what do you know theologically? It's not what Bible verses you can recite. It is right now, am I following Jesus? And to be honest enough, if the answer is no, to recalibrate and make sure that I am. And so if, as you stand here this morning, you ask yourself, am I, am I really following Jesus? Not perfectly. We're going to see. Paul doesn't say we do it perfectly. Or are we not following Jesus? That's the question. And you know what that means? That means, that means being willing in our prayer time to be honest and open with him. To receive what we have. What he has for us. And to respond in obedience. Jesus' proclamation about the kingdom of God symbolizes the results yielded by obedience to Christ. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' proclamation, his, his, his extrapolation, his explanation, what he's saying is, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It means not 
This is what it looks like when everybody else is listening. He's saying, this is what it looks like when you're obedient to me. This is what it looks like when a community of people come together and what motivates them is not their own agendas, but obedience to Christ. This is what I do in a community of people. I turn everything upside down in the best way possible so that the world would come to know who he is. See, we think we can live for ourselves and we can pretend to serve Jesus and hopefully we get to it. But in the exchange with the rich young ruler, at least he was honest. He had to do a calculation. All my stuff or Jesus. And the story of the rich young ruler is not a story of giving away all your money. It's a story of removing whatever idol is in your life ahead of Jesus. That's what the story is. And Jesus is saying, It's so extreme that whatever that idol is, you have to cast it as far away as possible. That's what what that is. And so at least with the rich young ruler, he had a decision to make. And and again, maybe we'll get to it. If not, read it, Mark 10. And it says he went away sad because he had great wealth. Again, we'll get into it. Interesting that he went away sad. But he at least made the calculation. We, Jesus, we have those exchanges with Jesus and we, we think we can do both. Like we think, I don't know. I think I can just keep whatever idol I have and tell everybody I'm following Jesus. And and if this is convicting to you, it convicts me, and I'm not sorry. That's what that that exchange is. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, and, and again, even in that, right? There's some things we do right. There's some progress we made. And Jesus is saying, but there's one thing. You and I, as we stand here, what is our one thing? That's getting in the way of God's will in our lives. That's, that's putting us on the shelf. That's stopping him from doing what he can do. And again, this isn't, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about, you know, uh, you know, a surrender that's impossible. We're talking about a surrender that's only possible with God. After Jesus talks about the rich and ruling, he says, you know, it's impossible for a rich man to get into the eyes. And then people say, well, how can anybody do it? And he says, with God, all things are possible. In other words, he's saying whatever idols are there, no matter whatever strongholds are there with God, if you trust in him, those strongholds can be broken. Those idols can come crashing down. Again and again in the Bible, men and women are graciously invited to enter into fellowship with God, to participate with what he's doing. That's the invitation, to participate with what God's doing. Not just to talk about it, not just to look at it, not just to be a cheerleader from the sidelines, to participate. Someone said once that the, book, the Bible is a book of invitations from God to mankind, urging us to be his partners in redeeming the world. That the Bible is a book from God to mankind, urging us, inviting us, compelling us, commanding us to be his partners in redeeming the world. That should excite us. And so Jesus begins with an invitation to follow him. Come to me, right? Come to me. And that, that invitation is that, that initial surrender. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are burdened. He's saying, come to me, all you who, despite your wanderings, have never found your restlessness Solved, have never found the result of what you've longed for. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've accomplished, it just feels like work and a burden. And you're restless and you're anxious 
and you're filled with fear and uncertainty and anxiety. And, and you have this ideas of what the, the church and the system of religion, the whole thing, the whole package, just everything seems so heavy on you. The heaviness, we know. We work 80 hours a week. You know, we got, we're all, you know, everybody struggles to, you know, we, you always hear that, that, you know, that expression, I'm struggling to make a living. And Jesus enters into that struggle and he says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll give you a rest that's so profound. I'll rescue you from being in a situation where you're happy if things are good, you're sad if you're just up and down according to, you know, what's going on around you. Come to me. Uh, the, the, I am the object of your longing. I am I'm the fulfillment of your desires. Come to me. That's how it starts. That's the entryway to trust him. And if you're here and you've never trusted him and you're still trying to figure it out and you're doing this and you're doing that, that's who Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to each of us. Come to me. In other words, find the source of your longing and stop with your restlessness. The effect of sin is disconnection and Jesus invites us back into connection, into relationship. The Bible says this, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And, you know, I I think of the ocean, and I'm an ocean guy. Like, to me, a vacation, always a book and a beach. Doesn't matter where it is, a book and a beach, or I'm not on vacation. Need those two things. Love the ocean. Peaceful, calm, beautiful, dangerous, outrageous, right? That's the sea. So, you know, the the Bible's saying here, right, and this is um, Isaiah 57, 20. That's how the world's like. One day it's everything's good, smooth, beautiful, peaceful. The next day it's all like that's, right? Or in Deuteronomy 28 it says this. Anybody can relate to this? In the morning you say, oh, that it were evening. And at the evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. Ever wake up and be like, I can't wait for this day to end. I should have stayed in bed. I just want to close my eyes now and wake up tomorrow. Oh, that this day would end. And the night comes, you know, I can't wait for, right? That, that's what he's saying. Just this sense of no matter what you do, like, or, or like, man, to, you know, and I'm, I'm like this because I don't really have, like, a, I can't compartmentalize. It's just one big messy, like, you know, I don't, I can't, I don't have the ability to just, like, put things. So to me, if, like, something goes bad, it's so easy to feel like the whole day's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I already met, I've been up for 10 minutes. I did a devotion. I, I read about patience. Somebody annoyed me. I was impatient. I'm done. Can't do it, right? Instead of, Lord, I need you. Thank you for reminding me how much I need you. Help me. Right, it's the prayer in Gethsemane, right? Lord, I'm in a situation. Would you change it? Would you, would you fix it? Would you, would you, you know, would you do this? But if you're not going to, if for whatever reason, would you just be in the midst? Would you help me trust you? Your will be done, not mine. You know how hard it is to pray that? And you know how reassuring it is to live that? Your will be done. Because you can gain and lose money and jobs and relationships and your health. But you can't gain and lose Jesus, right? We're invited into a relationship with him. Come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. Abide in me. That's what it is. 
And it doesn't mean that it's a, it's a level that once you get to, you know, you read that, oh, I'm, at, I'm at the abide in me point. Yeah, I, I, come to me, believe me, follow me. I skipped right to the abide in me. I don't even, I don't, I'm on level five. It doesn't work like that. We all, all have to recognize, where, where am I? What do I need that believe, repent, obey? It's the same thing. What do I need right now? Do I need to trust him? Am I, am I, is, is things so messy that I just, I don't, I don't need a solution. I just need his presence. Because a lot of times we pray and we pray. We, we, we want a solution and God's going, I just want you to be here with me. And so we got to recognize that the answer to our prayer is in him. This is describing what the Christian life looks like. The first invitation is an invitation for rest. You're, angl- you're anxious, you're restless, you're searching. Without Christ, we're adrift. Does this ring true to anyone? But he's providing a different way to live through him and in him. He offers a relationship, but you can't force relationship, right? If I said, hey, uh, you uh, good friends with uh, Joe Smith, and you said, yeah, Joe Smith, he's got the blue eyes, he's five foot 11, he works at the... Pl-. I mean, that, that might mean you know him, but that just means you know stuff about him. And so... There was people that knew stuff about Jesus. It wasn't even the wrong stuff. And what Jesus said, well, that we weren't in relationship. Relationship indicates trust and communication, some affection, right? So we, we, we think that knowing about somebody means being in a relationship with them, and it doesn't. It involves that. Hopefully you know some things about the people you're in a relationship with. If not, you're in trouble. Some of you guys are like, I'm not sure my wife's favorite color. I'm not sure my wife, No. Right? But it's more than just a set of facts that we affirm. Those things are important. The Bible's written that we would know the character of God. And what does Jesus say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You read the scriptures so that you can find me, but I stand here, you miss it. Can't see the forest for the trees, right? Jesus Christ stood in front of Pilate, and Pilate said to him, what is truth? How blind can you be? How blind can we be when truth stands in front of us and calls us that we bid adieu to the world and we follow him without abandon? That compared to that relationship, that everything else we cast aside. You know, I was talking to somebody after the first service, and to this day, the rich young ruler is probably one of the saddest stories in the Bible to me. Imagine how that guy's life would have ended. We don't know how it ended, but I can tell you it doesn't matter doesn't matter how much fortune he amassed. I bet over and over again he regretted that one decision. If you ignore someone, it doesn't matter what facts you believe about them. It's not a relationship. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The second invitation is to discipleship, right? Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. He doesn't say, hey, follow me. Which means just stand on the sidelines and watch what everybody else is doing. He doesn't say, follow me. For most people, I'm going to make fishers of men. You, not so much. Just be the cheerleader. Just tell everybody about, hey, there's Jesus and there's a group of people. And they're making disciples. And then he says this, follow me. And I will make you become. It doesn't say follow me and you'll necessarily become immediately. Jesus is saying, you follow me. 
And as a result of that relationship, as long as you're abiding in me, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to be my witness to the world. If you can't follow me, then what are you doing? Right? You can't do ministry for Jesus without Jesus. Right? Amen. Christian discipleship gives us the privilege of being associated with Christ intimately. I heard it this way. We are saved to serve. We are redeemed to reproduce spiritually. And we are fished out of the miry clay so that in turn we become fishers of men. We are not rescued to then go back to whatever we were rescued from until we get stuck again. It's like that, that video with the sheep, right? The guys struggle and they free the sheep from the ditch and it bounces and two seconds later it falls right back into the ditch. And that's the best picture of me. I'll say me, that's the best picture of my life that I've ever seen. Please, Jesus, rescue me. Thanks. Doom, right back in the ditch, right? Discipleship must be learned from the master teacher, Christ himself. We must know the word before we can teach the word. A requirement of discipleship is we continue in the word of God. Jesus says this, by, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples in John fifteen eight. I read this, if self is slain and the spirit reigns, the fruits of discipleship are bound to be seen in our lives. I'll say that again. If self is slain, that's like some of you are like, I'm out. Right, that's our, that's die to self, that's tough. We gotta recognize that's an invitation to life, right? We said that, it's not just die to self, it's die to self so that you may live. Participate in the death of Jesus to participate in the resurrection of Jesus. If self is slain and the spirit reigns, the fruits of discipleship are bound to be seen in our lives. I'm gonna share with you something in my life. Leadership is difficult. It's always difficult. And, you know, in, in leadership, you know, in leadership, when you're managing people, when you're shepherding, leading people, just like with, with, with my kids, I think of it like that in terms of not that the people you're leading are like kids, but different people respond to different things, right? And with certain people, certain things work. And so I, I pray, and I'm always, you know, I want to I be developed. I want to do well, and I'm always praying. And when I struggle, not just internally in the church, but even trying to minister to other people. And so I'm praying yesterday with, with the Lord. And I'm, you know, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm struggling. I want to be better, point out some things. Now, when you say that in prayer, you have to be honest, which means that sometimes we ask God for answers we don't really want, Right? And so when you say, Lord, show me, and he shows you, then what? Because for self to be slain, we've got to be honest enough to say, yeah. And so this is my prayer. Lord, you know, I'm trying to lead. I'm trying to do well. And, you know, I'm not. But, you know, there's certain things like, you know, if people, if I'm leading people and they're not responding, you know, that they should change. In my prayer, I feel like I'm saying to God, you, sorry, he says to me, well, who should change, you know, in that, in that perspective? And I'm like, well, the, the people that you're leading, and immediately God said, no. No, that's not what leadership is. First of all, you can't change anybody. You can only change you. And second of all, being a leader and being a shepherd doesn't mean you put your needs first. And, and this isn't like, you know, I'm not, I, I, it's like, it's not a, when your motives are good, it's harder sometimes to see the sin or the, or the mistake. So we've got to be open. To say, not, God, not what, I'm, what am I doing bad, but what can I be doing better? So I feel like God said, all you need to do is worry about you. And in any situation, you're always the one that needs to change. Now, 
I knew that was true immediately in my spirit, but I wanted to push back. But see, that's all we can do in any situation is allow God to change us. What people do, people do. But we got to be so self-aware and so trusting in God that we say, all right, Lord, show me. And when he shows us, then what? If self is slain and the spirit reigns, the fruits of discipleship are bound to be seen in our life. Our problem is we don't even invite the process of slaying self. I don't oftentimes invite that process. But when we do, and he brings us clarity, and we walk in obedience, the things that God does are so amazing and so beyond anything we could have ever thought of. It's remarkable. I, I, you know, I, I think of it this way because I'm, I'm such an idiot. I think it's a great example. So when I was in Teen Challenge, this guy used to, you know, it was a guy that told me to do stuff I liked. There was another guy. I just didn't like him. And so I thought I was pretty bright. And so one of the times the guys that I didn't like told me to do stuff, and I said, here's my, here's my process for you. I said, if you tell me to do stuff and it's a good idea, I'm going to do it because it's a good idea. And if you tell me to do stuff and it's a dumb idea, but I like you, I'm going to do it because I like you. But if you tell me to do something and I don't like you and it's a dumb idea, I'm not doing it. And I thought, I was pretty happy with that. I mean, I thought that that was like, and a guy, you know, just, just real quiet, you know, one of the leaders, he puts his arm around me. He's like, brother, hear me out. What if it's not so much about the results, but the process in you? And then he just walked away. Mm. You think God can get whatever results he wants any way he wants? You think maybe it's about our level of surrender? I say it all the time, if you like math, right? Your surrender is equal to or greater than your... Your effectiveness is equal to or greater than your surrender, right? So everybody wants to do great things for God. We just want to live for self. And it doesn't work like that. And at least the rich young ruler knew that to be the case. In thinking we can have it both, we gain neither. The rich young ruler didn't have satisfaction in his wealth, and he didn't have satisfaction in Christ. And unless he repented, he lived his whole life restlessly wandering still, not responding to the invitation of the one who said, I will give you rest and purpose, and meaning, and value. A true disciple of Christ will bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. And the people who are with us daily, they'll take note if we've been with Jesus. We will radiate Christ. You ever see some people not that smiling? It's not fake. They don't, you know, we don't go through life, daddy. That's not. But no matter what seems to be going on around them, there's just a deep-rooted satisfaction. Amen. A peace that surpasses understanding, right? Because they know, like they know, like they know, Jesus Christ. And the third invitation is live in the realm of God. 
abide in me and I in you. John 15, 4. And I like that word, and we've said before, it means to remain, but my favorite definition is to make your home. To make your home in, right? I think of leaving here and going home, and immediately I'm going to put my sweatpants on. I'm at the age. I know I'm, I'm old. Comfortable socks every year. You know, you're a kid. When you get socks for Christmas, you're sad. Me, I just want good socks. All I want, comfortable socks and swept. I am good. Everybody asks me, what do you want? Socks. I just want good socks, right? I go home. I'm comfortable. I'm at peace. It's a refuge. It's a safe place, right? And then last night, uh, yesterday, we were watching Little Riley. So not only, I had a rough, rough week, rough day. And not only am I going home to a place of refuge, but now I learned there's going to be a baby. So that's even better. That's like, right? Jesus is saying, make your home. Your place of refuge, that place where you can unwind, where you can be yourself, where all the, the masks can come off, all the, you know, and again, I'm not saying we're all pretentious and fake, but you know, you can just be yourself. And Jesus is saying, I want to be that. I want to be your refuge. I want to be that place that you come to be renewed and refreshed. He's inviting us to make our home with him. And we think that salvation is, I believe in Jesus, and it is that. But it's not just that. It's not just the transaction whereby you go on doing whatever it was you were doing. That's not what the Bible's picture of a follower of Jesus is. And we said last week, and we'll continue through the series, again and again and again, Jesus doesn't do things to try and convince and manipulate. He doesn't follow up you and be like, wait, 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 please reconsider. He simply presents himself as who he is, and people need to decide. And I'll tell you, and I've been studying for a long time, theologians for thousands of years, they still don't know how that works. We know it's based on God's grace. We know it's based on faith. We know it's a gift. But how it works when the gospels preach, when it's proclaimed who Jesus is, something activates faith, and God knows. We don't know. So when people say, well, the way that that works, the way salvation, predeterminism versus free will, they don't know. They don't know. I'm telling you, that's the answer. They don't know. And whatever anybody does in any of those situations is, I mean, we should try to understand things, but sometimes we need to be humble enough to go, I don't understand the mind of God, but I trust in him. And so if I have a question how he does things, well, that doesn't seem very just. Well, then my view of justice is flawed, not his. And so we trust in him for the process. But we're called to respond to the gospel and live it out. And it's biblical. I read this. Salvation is not an occasional rendezvous with a deity. It is actually dwelling with God. Think of that. Salvation is not an occasional rendezvous. It is dwelling, abiding with God. That's the invitation. Christianity is not just an avocation. It's a lifelong, eternity-long vocation. David, Psalm 91.1, thrilled with the knowledge that his life was in God, said, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. See, we can't say we're friendless. When Christ is said in John 15.15, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. He calls who friends? Those in relationship with him. 
And being in a relationship with Jesus indicates following Jesus. And I want to say this again and listen to me. It means a changed life, not as a prerequisite for following him, but as a result of following him. It means a changed life, not as a prerequisite. It doesn't mean we go, ah, you know, there's some things I need to work out. But once I do that, then I'm going to invite Jesus into my life. That's not how that works. Not a prerequisite, but the result of following Jesus, a changed life and a changing life. So the only question we need to ask ourselves is right now, am I following Jesus? As I said, it's going to be probably part three, part four. I want to, I'm going to get through just Philippians 3, and then we're going to pause, and we'll have the worship team come up, and, and we'll continue. But I want us to be able to say like Paul, is, is, are we following Jesus? Is my life hidden in Christ? Is my desire, are my desires informed by God's desires? Is the will for my life God's will for my life? Or is it still my will for my life? I mean, we've got to be honest. And as I ask that question in our spirit, we know the answer. So what are we going to do with it? Have some emotional reaction to a sermon one way or the other. Well, that was challenging. That was convicting. I didn't like it, whatever. Or are we going to allow the, the Spirit of God to change us? And even if that means saying, I am, you know, I've been living like this. I'm helpless to change. Good. Good. And now invite him to change you. So what Paul describes here isn't extraordinary. It's not just for Paul. It's not just for pastors. And he does some powerful things. And Paul's a brilliant writer. And this is what he's doing. Ready? Philippians 3. He's talking about righteousness through faith. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Paul's going, look, I keep saying this stuff over and over again. It's helpful for you. It's helpful for me. This is what it's about. Look out for the dogs, verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what Paul's saying is, look out for those who are still preaching a gospel that's not this gospel, which is salvation by faith. He's saying, look out for people who say, you still need to do X, Y, Z. You still need to be circumcised. It's about an external. Paul's saying, it's not about the external uh, circumcision. It's about the internal. And so in verse 3, he says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. He's saying something's changed, that it's not about the old system of the law. It's not about the old system of external signs. It's about the new system. The new circumcision is not just an external sign. It's an internal sign. He's talking about a circumcision of the heart. And so Paul's going, look, brothers, I want to tell you again, it's not about religion. And anybody who tells you about religion, it removed Christ from that. Because if we could do it with religion, Christ wouldn't need to come. And Paul will extrapolate that more. But right now, he's, he's a pastoral letter, right? For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put, not a little bit of confidence. I love this phrase. Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says it has nothing to do with what you can or can't do. Zero and then he says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So Paul says, look, if you think you have a right to brag, and you think it's about what you've done and what you know, all right, let's go down that road. I'm going to go down that road to you. This is what Paul's saying. 
Paul's going, if you think you have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying, you want my credentials in the flesh? Here they are. You can't compare to me. I was born to the right family. I was born to the right tribe. I was born doing the right thing. I am under the law blameless. If you want to compare resumes, I win. And then you think, well, Paul's making a pretty boastful claim. Well, no, here's what Paul's doing. He's going he's gonna to show you because the next verse is going to be the linchpin, right? He's going to say, if you think it's about all that, look at me. And then immediately he says this, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count now as loss for the sake of Christ. That's the statement. That's what he's trying to say. Can we say like Paul does, verse 8? And I'm going to ask the worship team and Pastor Jamie to come up, and I'm going to close with these final thoughts. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found of him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith. And he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's going, look, everything I had, everything I knew, everything I did, it's, it's incomparable when compared to Jesus. It's not even, you can't even draw a comparison. All those things are rubbish. They're garbage. They're they're. Nothing compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. And then he says this, because we can say, well, I don't know. I mean, that's Paul. I don't know if I can do that. He's not saying he made it. In fact, in verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but here's the one thing I do. And why don't we stand? I know Pastor Jamie's going to get ready to lead us to the altar call, but I want this last verse in our mind because we need this reminder. Forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying it's not easy. But if it's the call of God, it's good. And it's perfect. And it's incomparable. Amen? Amen.